Legionaries, this is General Lance joined with you, Sergeant Barnes, and Peter Frangle again. Welcome, sir. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Well, thanks so much for coming back, back to the uh, command post, uh, sitting here with uh, some uh, Jack Daniels. But, you know, uh, the new cycle and uh, I guess the international geopolitical situation is a lot more unstable than it ever has been in the last, let's say, I don't know, five years, I would, I would say. Um, <laughs> and I think really one of the most interesting developments which has happened in the last week is the uh, ostensible withdrawal of all troops from Syria and Iraq. And if you're someone such as myself, you know, our, let's say, uh, our presence in that area has been a long-standing facet of our, our you know, Middle Eastern uh, deployment schema uh, for a very long time. And I guess I just really wanted to ask you, why is this happening now? And why is it that we're there in the first place? I think a lot of, a lot of legionaries out there don't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, to answer the second part about, you know, why we're there, would probably take you know several hours, you know, going back all the way to the you know the FDR Saudi alliance of during World War II, right? So, um, but you know, fast forward you know hundred years or so, um, you, the interventions into Syria, um, the actions against ISIS, uh, you know, are all coordinated and authorized under the uh, authorization. Of the use of military force that was passed seven days after 9-11, right? So um, because there was no geographic um, uh, listing, there, there was no ge- geographic uh, boundaries placed into the, um, the, uh, the piece of legislation, it has been widely interpreted to allow U.S. force or the DOD administrations to go after terrorists that don't have have never had any type of association with the attacks of 9-11 or attacks directly against U.S. forces and um, using the that 2001 <laughs> authorization they went into Syria someone under the guise of uh, of, of the um, of protecting Syrians from the Bashar regime and also against other types of insurgent organizations, specifically ISIS. And, you know, then we can go down a rabbit hole of that whole situation about, you know, ISIS and Syria and who funded who and such. But, um, you know, you know, that's why I guess you can say officially that's, that's why they're in Syria slash, um, you know, Northern Iraq is Mm -hmm. 
you know, the continual the continual fight against ISIS. So, so that's um, the there's a lot of there's a there's a that's a lot of there's a lot a lot of layers to that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of truths and half truths and such, but. You know, that's that's what they're saying. They're there. And, oh, and also the oil. Right. Don't forget about the oil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the interesting thing for someone that's uh, autistically fixated on the Syrian conflict <laughs> since it broke out in mm-hmm. 2011. I think a lot of, you know, the listeners out there, I think they're not really uh, cognizant of the dynamics there in Syria, which, you know, mm-hmm. is a, basically a three way uh, local, regional, con, con, you know, arena civil contest. It's a, civil, it's, a, it's a civil war. Yeah, I mean, of course. But, I mean, it yeah. has many different, yeah. like, uh, different mm-hmm. coalitions vying against each other. I mean, you have the Turks and you have, you yes. know, the traditional states. You have, of course, um, you know, American-aligned factions, in addition to, of course, the Russian-aligned factions and so on, yep. um, and the YPG and all that. However, I guess the most salient point that I wanted to ask is um, – you know, with you know the invasion of two thousand three, and the dissolution of the Basis regime, um, okay, and the yeah. the follow on you know republic the Shiite republic uh, in Iraq, do you believe mm-hmm. that strategically speaking, the how do you say this in a in a polite way, do you think that mm-hmm. the strategic withdrawal is a product of our own loss at that war and our misgivings with in, in, in consideration to the fact that we invaded Iraq only to turn it over to Iranian influence? Is that valid, mm-hmm. a valid perception of how things go? As simple as I can put it is um, the, day, the, the day that the Bush administration gave the gave CENTCOM the authorization to invade Iraq – and then the the day that um, coalition forces crossed um, crossed the line into Iraq is the day that essentially we handed Iran um, a a proxy nation of Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, it took you know a decade plus of it uh, of of insurgencies, counterinsurgencies, different types of military operations. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is the outcome. Mm-hmm. Iran now has a land bridge from its border to uh, to Israel, to Lebanon, um, and so essentially to the Mediterranean mm-hmm. because of the, of the miscalculations of going into Iraq, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, I guess I guess the follow-on question, which is what was in the news cycle specifically, um, has to do with the ongoing strikes, which caused the deaths of three soldiers. Um, and yes. Rest in peace, obviously. Um, and uh, you know, my heart goes out for them. Um, however, it begs the question, you know, it, 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 you know, basically the the turn of events has been a score of days where UAVs and UAS drone strikes have been striking these forward operating bases of the United States mm-hmm. in this territory. And then of course we reacted by, uh, let's say, you know, killing leadership of Shiite militias, which are part of the Iraqi mm-hmm. defense state, um, but are considered to be proxies of Iran. Um, I would mm-hmm. like you to just go into the specifics on how exactly the Iraqi military has been reconstituted after we kind of dissolved the Ba'athist party. Because from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
the it seems to me that I just read this from an article that basically the Bader brigades and a number of other different uh, militias with their political parties became mm-hmm. basically ushered in or grandfathered in into almost a feudal type um, arrangement with the central republic government. Is that accurate or has that changed? What's your no? You're, no, you're no, you're correct. So all the different uh, militias, uh, well, okay. So insurgent groups that kind of became militias, um, in the vein of what occurred in, uh, you know, during the, tr- after the troubles in, in, in Ireland, between uh, Ireland and UK, you know, they were, uh, put into the political system under the, un- under an umbrella that has a certain term. I cannot think of it at this very moment, but yes. Yeah, so those, those militia groups were uh, put into a uh, almost, you could say constituting a national guard that we have here in the States um, to give them somewhat of a, of a um, to give them some sort of validity uh, to give them, you know, a, a feeling that they are part of the system and so forth. So they do have an and, official mandate, right? Like, just to be clear, they have an official yes. recognition, well, recognized now, now, relationship so with the government. By they, I'm sorry, by they, what do you mean? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So uh, these Iranian-aligned militias that you know of, that are of Shia origin uh, operate under the uh, the umbrella of a vast majority of other militias um, that the Iraqi government kind of recognized again in order to, uh, in a, in their thought process would kind of, um, um, kind of not, not mitigate, but kind of give them some sort of control over those militias. So it sounds like a buy-in system that basically, you know, if they have a stake in the government that there is yes. obviously this passive influence, we could, we could probably mm-hmm. eke out of them. It seems like that's kind of, Reverse on this, though, because uh, and, uh, you know, I'm just thinking, for instance, of Soleimani and the Quds yes. Force mm-hmm. and so on. I guess I wanted your professional opinion as far as the capability of the Quds Force or the larger, um, I guess, uh, the larger formation of the uh, IRGC. Um, you know, are they efficacious? Are they effective? Um, you know, because partly within myself and maybe this is my ignorance speaking, it doesn't seem to me that Iran is that necessarily, um, how do you say this uh, professionally? Let's say they're not really on par with any kind of near peer adversaries at best. And, you know, from you my mean, readings. You mean their near peer or our near peer? Our near peer. Okay. And uh, it, um, it, it, okay. Seemed, it seems to me, because I, I was, re- you know, I, I read about the uh, Iran Iraq war. Uh, recently, mm-hmm. and they had a pretty, you know, barely mediocre combat record. And I kind of just wanted to pick your brain mm-hmm. as far as, you know, how effective is this force? What is the mm-hmm. uh, larger capability of the IRGC? And is this something really we should, as Americans, be concerned about in the sense that are they a threat significant enough to constitute something being warranted, you know, for further intervention? Uh, so I, so are you familiar with a book called armies of sand? Yes, sir. Um, okay. So, you know, I'm pretty sure like if I remember correctly, the premise is that, uh, the middle East historically has had, 
you know, systemic issues when it came to fielding, you know, Western technology and then going uh, and then um, utilizing Western doctrine to fight wars. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's true. That's true from uh, from, you know, all the way from Iran to northern, you know, th- northern um, Africa, you know, everything that happened during all the, the three major war, the three major wars of Israel and its surrounding neighbors. Right. Mm-hmm. Kind of prove that point that, mm-hmm. you know, you could get, and also the, the 91 Gulf war and the 2003 invasion is that, you know, they, the, they could have the most advanced technology from the Soviet union and so forth. They could have trainers they of, to give them, you know, on the spot training for doctrine. But again, it's fielded by, um, um, uh, Middle Easterners era, you know, you know, a culture that is very different that didn't create those things in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a mismatch, so, right? It sounds, there's a mismatch, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so just you know, Iran and other nations don't necessarily have to be a near peer threat to be a threat, correct? Correct. So, um, I think what people in the West get stuck on is it one is they look, they just kind of look at capabilities of a country purely based off of how many tanks they have, how many airframes they have, you know, how many, um, you know, ship going, um, you know, what their fleet looks like. And they just kind of look at it at a numbers game uh, versus like, because in a way that's what we do in the, in the West, right. Yeah, we kind of look at what you know what they what they have on hand, and if we you know if if ours is better than theirs, right? Right. Isn't this called uh, and, force composition? What's the official term for this? Uh, force comparison or something like that? Yeah, force comparison. Yeah, depending on what um you know, what branch you're on, what branch you're in, and all that, and um and there's a specific <clears throat> there's a specific term in uh, intelligence doctrine as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, but what people what what has been lost in, you know, especially specifically after the Cold War, is that because because of the success, quote unquote, of the West, NATO, and the United States um, during the Cold War, they have come to believe that there is but one way, the only way, to con- to conduct warfare, and that is their way, right? Mm-hmm. And that um, any other way is going to be inefficient. Is going to be uh, you know, overwhelmed by our, uh, you know, our ability to concentrate mass at the critical points, our logistics and such. Mm-hmm. And they don't really give any type of credence to other ways of warfare, other doctrines, other ways of how certain pieces of equipment, certain pieces of technology can be used to hurt uh, friendly forces. And that has really really hamstrung a lot of our military might in the last, you know, know, look at GY, right? Um, And so, and they still don't, and going in the Pentagon, it seems, DOD doesn't really seem to have really listened to any of their, you know, after action reviews and, really read any of the products coming out of um, the centers of uh, lesson learned out of there in uh, Fort Worth, Kansas. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, I guess uh, basically to summarize what you said is basically, you know, just because they are not a conventionally understood force or that we Mm -hmm. don't compare to, well, excuse me, from our paradigm, we outstrip them in every measure. However, you're saying that we shouldn't be considering it from our paradigm and we should be considering it from an Mm -hmm. absolute perspective, dynamic one, and, and, uh, you know, feel that reach. From my understanding, I've heard some crazy stuff. Like, for instance, there are some um, Hezbollah bases with a large presence in Venezuela in the Americas, yes, is. which is an extension yes, is. of the IRGC, if I'm if I'm wrong or correct. Um, you, 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 were, you were not incorrect. All right, perfect. And so I guess my, my question to you is, as an asymmetrical threat to the United States, like, I mean to the homeland, I'm not talking about interests, I'm not talking about... Um, the threats posed to our service members, which, of course, I care about. But as far as, you know, the base standard foundation of homeland security, um, Mm -hmm. what is the real threat profile of the IRGC? And what is the CUDS force specifically? Uh, uh, As in their ability to uh, their ability to conduct attacks here in the uh, in the states, is that what you're asking? Yes, uh, like the stab- sabotage or maybe even assassination, smuggling, whatever it okay. is that might undermine, uh, you know, U.S. homeland security. So I, I've, um, you know, being, you know, because of my background, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm an intelligence officer. Um, you know, I've been in the last 20 years, and the biggest question mark and puzzle that I have not been able to unravel is. Why during the the height of the GUI, right? Like uh, going into Afghanistan, going into G, uh, into Iraq, you have Libya, you, have, you know, all these situations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have all of these new and arising TTPs that killed a lot of um, American or coalition uh, soldiers. Uh, you know, why did we never see any of those? Here in the states, right, mm-hmm. in, a, in a very permissive, like very open environment, right? Why do they never? Why did we never see them here? I mean, it, 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 I I do not believe that you know it's the the I do not see you know DHS immigration and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. as some sort of like you know all, like all seeing eye and being able to catch all these threats, right? Right. So you know why didn't so why didn't we ever see EFPs going off? you know, in and around DC or New York city you know, or LA. And, you know, why did we see, uh, you know, sales of, of groups going into crowded malls during uh, Christmas and so forth. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's like, that's something I kind of kind of wonder about and struggle because it seems like an obvious, you know, a tactic or a TTP that if you are a, you know, uh, non-traditional or asymmetric threat, you know, that's some, a route that you would go down, right? Mm-hmm. You know, right. So, like, so, 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 I'm kind of asking you that, like, so, you know, in your opinion, why didn't we see that? You know, to be to be frank with you, and this is something that I've been harping on for a long time, and my experience, you know, with uh, talking with mil- American military men specifically, um, I mm-hmm. think we really abandoned the political formulations, you know, uh, the equation or the the the, the reasoning if that makes sense, uh, behind mm-hmm. kinetic operations. And I think that if Iran were to do something as 
I don't know, as uh, flagrant as Al-Qaeda did in, uh, you know, September 11th, 2001. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, mm-hmm. it would be defeating its own strategic long-term um, goals, right? I mean, ultimately, okay. Iran, yeah. Iran is not Al-Qaeda. Uh, at the end of the day, Iran is mm-hmm. a nation-state with the interest yep. of, uh, you know, s- providing security and economic prosperity to its citizens, at the very least. And ultimately, I don't believe it has the same calculus of politics uh, in comparison to uh, non-state actors, right? And mm-hmm. I guess I guess the reason why I ask you, though, is because I'm sure you saw that Biden just made a proclamation um, regarding Palestine and the population's mm-hmm. trying to leave Palestine. And, mm-hmm. of course, the corollary implied uh, topic of Hamas, <laughs> right? And so I guess mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, how related is Hamas to Iran? Because it seems like the news is trying to connect these two, even though, of course, mm-hmm. Hamas is actually a Sunni Islamist group, from what I understand, mm-hmm. and that Hezbollah and all Iranian forces are Shiites. And, of course, this is a right. chasm between these two. I mean, it's a very serious uh, religious uh, division. And so I guess mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you, you know, what what is the role there that they're playing? And do you believe that, uh, you know, I guess give us some background as far as what Biden's talking about and what the implications <laughs> of that are. So you know, to, to kind of go back to the last point, you know, about, you know, why do you, you know, didn't see these type of things arise in here in the States? You know, like, and, and you know, this is before, you know, before Iran and stuff, you know, like when, you know, Al-Qaeda and ISIS was, you know, were really the threat, right? Like, you know, it's in my opinion, and it's, you know, it's that, you know, it's that, uh, idiom of, uh, you know, you don't shit where you eat. Right. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you're not going to go into, um, into the home nation of your enemy, you know, for the most part, when you're asymmetric and, and cause all this havoc, because what you're going to do is you're going to turn a, a, you know, again, a war that was, you know, GWAT was a back burner war, right. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it didn't require a, uh, a war economy, um, you know, Bush was talking about going out there and spending money. Um, and it, it never really was a, a, a war that the American people kind of had a, you know, um, felt they needed to tighten their, their, their belts for it. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, why turn it into a war of such? And so in a way, that's why and I think you didn't see such things happening here in the States. And then, you know, to your point about, you know, why you don't see Iran and Iranian backed um, proxies doing that here in the States is, again, you're right. They are a nation state and nation states have different interests than, say, you know, um, um, uh, uh, non-aligned organizations throughout the world. So, yeah, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to set off necessarily a nuke in (laughs) Kansas City because they know that they know what's going to happen. Right. Yeah, so it's not the sum of all fears. Yeah. It's not Tom Clancy. That's what you're telling me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So I mean, and so, regards- and so then, and then going, so then going into the Palestine issue. Can you uh, ask the question again? Yeah. So I, so I'm getting this from normie newspaper sites, and obviously, <laughs> let's take that with a heavy whole bag of salt, yeah. right? So I guess my mm-hmm. question to you is: parse reality from fiction, mm-hmm. and explain to us the relationship between Hamas and Iran. And what mm-hmm. is that, uh, the dynamic between, like the significance of Biden's uh, pronouncement about the Palestinian people in Gaza? 
so I, I, you know, to be completely honest, I, mean, I do not know the in-depth history between Hamas and, and Iran. You know, I do know the, you know, when um, uh, when Gaza was essentially given you know, self-government governance from Israel, uh, when Israel gave Gaza self-governance, they held elections, uh, <laughs> Hamas won, and, uh, you know, and then Hamas, you know, just never really held elections since, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and they just kind of held on to power through you know, series of um, fear, fear, uh, intimidation, and you know, projecting the issues that the Palestinian people have onto the Jewish nation, to Western world, and to and also to a certain extent, other uh, uh, Muslim nations that surround them. Mm-hmm. And so, Hamas, it's again, Hamas and Iran. So it's a situation of you know. The um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend type thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's it was documented in Iraq that there there was coordination between Sunni and Shia insurgent groups, um, be, you know, against coalition forces. Um, but then the moment the was it, the mosque got uh, the the mosque uh, was bombed in Karbala, is that right? The, mo- the mosque that was bombed in Iraq that uh-huh. kicked off the sectarian civil war, mm-hmm. you know, all bets were off, right? Mm-hmm. That's when, you know, Iraq, and that's when Sunnis and Shias were just killing each other left and right. You had Shia death squads just roaming Baghdad, killing everybody, cutting off heads, and all that kind of jazz, right? Mm-hmm. So, yes, they, they, they in, a, in a sense, they have a very long history of not getting along and hating each other. But, you know, when faced with a you know somewhat common enemy, they can say, well, okay, well, let's kill them first and then we can get back to killing each other. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's so interesting how parochial like these uh, conflicts are. It's almost like you're opening a book and being transported back yeah. to medieval Europe. This, it just seems like this, you know, a uh, bunch of warlords that from time to time put down their weapons against each other and turn in a common foe. Um, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a tactic, and it is a situation as old as time and as old as warfare. Where again, where two clans, two organizations that you know seemingly have nothing to do with each other and, and quite frankly hate each other, you know, will you know band together uh, in order to destroy an external foe. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. I guess it leads us to our, our my real question here because. <laughs> I'm sure you've been following the urban operations going on with the IDF going into Gaza and basically them blowing the entire strip of land into smithereens, clearing out Mm -hmm. underground tunnels. And there are multiple. Yeah. And and there's uh, the the recent operation and and was it Northern? I'm not going to lie. Like sometimes I just kind of like gloss over a lot of that because it's just, it, it just becomes so propaganda you know there's so much propaganda surrounding it from every angle it just it just becomes tiresome um and so i'm if i'm tracking correctly there is there has been or there is going to be a rather large uh, operation by the idf into northern gaza is that correct yes okay yes Uh, so where where essentially like all the wretched like all the people pushed one way or the other has gone as for you know for safety right right and for the audience out there for relevance just think of, you know, if you can vision in your mind's eye Israel and then right at the coast in Ascalon, there's just strip of land. It's called Gaza and it borders directly on Egyptian Sinai. 
and of course has a large <laughs> yeah has a large uh, frontier with Israel. <laughs> um, the conflict that we're seeing is unprecedented in the amount of civilian casualties incurred on the Palestinian population. And it mm-hmm. seems as though that there's this discord between President Biden and Netanyahu, who is the prime minister, as far as the conduct of the war and the manner in which the war is, I guess, uh, let's see, bordering on ethnic cleansing. And it seems that the yeah. Egyptians don't want to allow the refugees from Palestine into their territory. And it seems that the Jordanians don't want that either. Uh, nor mm-hmm. do any other, you know, possible <laughs> neighboring states. Can you explain to us what's up with that, and why is it that they don't want to accept them? Yeah, sorry, sorry for my laughter during your um, during your talk. It, no, it's I just, get it. um, <laughs> it's um, so you know, uh, you know, the Israeli state was created in uh, forty seven uh, by the you know uh, was it. Uh, UN Charter, right? And the United States was the first nation to recognize it. Again, if my memory serves correctly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which comes out of the you know comes out of the British Mandate, going back you know after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire after war after World War One. And um, you know, the creation of Israel, you know, it wasn't necessarily like a um, you know a widely accepted or you know wanted action in, in the international sphere right mm-hmm. Pre, uh, you know br- the brits were kind of divided on it the french you know a lot of major players were kind of you know on the fence about it and um you, you know not getting you know get, not getting into you know conspiracies or being called a you know not you know you know i am neither anti-semitic nor am i a zionist i guess yeah. um even though it's hilarious when people call me either one um but yeah so you know israel um and the the fledgling co- government um you know fought a war that at the end of, they fought a war at the end uh they expelled um you know millions of palestinians from the from the, their land right which occurs which has occurred historically through time um you know every nation has done so right um you know accusations of uh, genocide, ethnic cleansing, uh, the the right of return, and, and so forth. You know, these are all things that kind of surround the creation of, of Israel, right? And not getting into the validity of those is just because those are things that just happen. You know, anytime there is war, mm. and then you know, over the course of Israel's uh, you know, after those years, um, they fight a series of of wars of uh, cold. Uh, Wars against coalitions of Arab nations, um, and one where they were almost annihilated, pushed into the sea, uh, and others where they were, you know, begged to stop. <laughs> where they were begged to stop um, by the, you know, by Henry Kissinger, they were begged to stop um, going further into Egypt, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and then after that, a lot of the Arab nations around them kind of realized, hey, maybe this wasn't the best, maybe this isn't the best approach. And certain governments, you know, started to, uh, you know, work in the shadows with the Israeli government for certain things and and so forth. And a lot of um, countries started to switch from uh, alliances with the Soviet Union, you know, with military technology and, and so forth to, to the U.S., you know, Egypt being the probably the most prominent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so... 
you know, without all that being said, there, you know, you had large amounts of Palestinians diaspora um, that were essentially looking for 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 somewhere to go, right? Mm-hmm. But they had a, they relatively had a dilemma. So their dilemma is if they go to a nation and accept their citizenship, then I guess they're they lo- I guess the way things are, they lose any type of claim on their right to return, right? Um, at, at least that's the way I understand it. And so they are just there. They're relatively stateless wherever they go. So, you know, Egypt, Jordan, and so forth. Lebanon. Well, the problem is, is when the diaspora has, has been used as a tool, specifically by the PLO, you know, that was created by Arafat, um, to kind of, uh, to rabble rouse to you know use you know to, to collect all of this anger and so forth and direct it towards israel mm-hmm. but doing so they had to use arab nations to as um staging points specifically in this case jordan and lebanon um jordan began to realize that the just the palestinian diaspora in their country was essentially a state within a state <laughs> um <laughs> they um the diaspora started to get uh not only violent against towards Israel interests, but also to Jordanian interests. And so the Jordanian uh, military declares war on them, leading to what is called the uh, Black September in 1970 or the Jordanian Civil War that lasted, I think, about eight months um, and expelled you know, the Palestinians from their nation, realizing that they're troublemakers because of uh, certain reasons. Um, right. Then then you have the situation in Lebanon, right, um, where the diaspora, you know, being used as a tool by the PLO, began to use it as a stage of ground to attack Israel. Um, Lebanon started getting pissed because, you know, Lebanon at the time was still, you know, it was was it was like the 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 the, the, uh, the France of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. It was majority Christian before, this before was, the um, Palestinian immigration, which is interesting. Uh, I don't. I, I'm not sure about that, that stat because I know that they've always had some sort of like sh- like government sharing type of situation between the Druids, the, the Christians, and the and the Muslims, mm-hmm. and and so when the PLO and the and the Palestinian diaspora start attacking Christians, the, the Lebanese military um, took military action against them, and and that was a that was the catalyst for the Lebanese civil war. So um, again, they were finally expelled. Mm-hmm. Um, Egypt, people kind of forget this, uh, has a, there's a wall that separates Gaza or no offense between Gaza and to, and the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, because again, the Egyptians do not want the Palestinians within their territory. Um, recently, (laughs) yeah, no, recently they have moved what significant amount of, uh, military hardware into the Sinai right, right outside border crossing saying, no, you're, if, if, you know, if you push these people into our country, we're either going we're going to push back. We're going to push back against what you're doing uh, because we don't want them in our territory. Mm-hmm. And you know, seems to kind of overlook that. Right. They, they seem to overlook that um, it's a, a lot of places where the dysphoria goes. It tends to not end well. For, or it doesn't tend to end to, in the best situation for the for the um, the, the home nation. Right. Mm-hmm. And. um and that plays a large part of why, again, right today in 2024, you know, Muslim nations are not, you know, opening the doors for the diaspora. Mm-hmm. But it's all, and also, also, and you know, you also have the thing of 
it's just, it keeps a stick in the eye and makes Israel looks bad, right? In, in a way, if that makes sense. I mean, of course. So it's, 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 it's a two way street, right? Like, hey, we don't want them in our nation because I know what they can do because of their history. Because of their history, but in a way, at the same time, you know, we can you know, use it as a tool to keep a, a, a stick in the eye of to the, to the Israeli government. I mean, moreover, it's also not ceding more ground to the Israelis. I mean, which no one wants to see. I guess in that area and among the Arab nations. And just for the record, and I feel like it's important to explicate this for the record, you know, we're examining military issues from a completely third party, indifferent perspective. I hope you understand this. We're not taking one side or the other. We're just examining it with indifference. And I know that might sound cold, but it's important for people <laughs> to understand. Yeah. You know, because I mean, it, it Go ahead. I mean, as a as a nation state, as a, you know, Israel has a right to exist as a nation state. Okay, that's a that's, you know, comma. But you can still criticize the methods and means of which they do in order to preserve that nation state. Right? Let's that. Those are two different things. Right. And and it's interesting because yeah. you know in uh, information warfare of today. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, you know, the curious thing is that any kind of you know chatter. On these, on on YouTube or whatever social media it may yeah. be, um, it's instantly picked up by the, uh, I guess the media information SIGINT sources of you know whatever and operators mm -hmm. and uh, I mean I'm, I'm sure you've you've experienced that before and that's definitely one of the most interesting dynamics of fifth generational warfare. I don't know if you do you ascribe mm -hmm. to that model by the way you know fourth fifth generation etc. Yeah, I, I mean, as a, as a general framework, I do. Um, I, you know, like most frameworks, they they're not 100 percent complete. So, you know, it's good to have kind of you know multiple ones if that makes sense. Of course, I, I mean, yeah. I personally use it just as a touchstone because it's the most yeah. uh, alluded to concepts. However, mm -hmm. I'm of the personal conviction that I think even things as uh, as we consider novel, like, you know, information warfare via the internet, I think they've always mm -hmm. had a, a form of that. It just wasn't as pronounced and it wasn't the center of gravity of previous iterations mm -hmm. of war. But anyway, mm -hmm. re returning to the original. Well, and, 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 that, and, and that's mainly because technology and the internet and so forth. Of course. Yeah. And, and we see that yeah. with every iteration, you know, there's an emphasis mm -hmm. on different, you know, mechanization, whatever. And yep. um, anyway, I guess uh, re returning to the original point, I guess the most interesting thing to me is, you know, the innovation in munitions, the cheapening of smart drones and, and smart munitions mm -hmm. and UAS systems, mm -hmm. which are mm -hmm. extremely accessible. Mm -hmm. and, 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 also don't, and, and also don't forget like the, um, so you, you speak, you speak of smart munitions. So don't forget about the kind of like, uh, more kinetic, less explosive type of mi missile systems that have been uh, used in the, um, I guess in, in the in the recent past. Mm -hmm. You know, I heard I heard something like that. It was a surgical missile that was designed to target one specific dude in a hospital setting, but because it didn't mm -hmm. want a mass casualty event, it was like a missile mm -hmm. that deployed at blades. That yep. like exploded and it was it, it didn't harm anyone else except for the targeted guy in question. It was honestly mm -hmm. kind of creepy. Um, yep. ho however, what I'm trying to ask you is, you know, we're seeing this in Ukraine as well, and we'll talk about that in, mm -hmm. in you know following conversation. But I wanted to ask you, you know, with the with this new emphasis on mass cheap smart munitions, 
are we going to see the end of capital intensive uh you know weapon systems like tanks um you know mm. freaking ifes or what have you, you know? <laughs> what's your opinion um, on that? <laughs> it's funny just uh just kind of my i guess my uh not somewhat limited knowledge of what the army's planning to do and some of the insights into their into their weapon systems that they are creating uh the, i mean even the u.s army is starting to lean even with their you know more capital intensive programs um, into you know making them less capital intensive um, and you know more mobile you know and, and so forth. So you know even in that sense, they are understanding that message and, and going along with it. Will it be the end? No, um, I, I'm I'm always very wary when people say you know uh, you know X is obsolete, Y is obsolete, mm-hmm. and so forth. Because um, you know the moment you start thinking like that your enemy is going to use that logic and thought process against you in a way. And so it's never really a good idea to say that something's becoming obsolete. It should be more viewed as um, what is going to be more applicable in the you know, geographic and cultural landscape. The war is going to be fault in if I make, if I'm making sense. Yes, of course. Right? Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know? It's, it's circumstantial, and I, you know, I was actually yeah. listening to um, the United States. But, but again, like, but but again, so the problem again, the problem is a a country like the United States that spans the globe, they they have to kind of be ready to fight everywhere, right? And so Precisely. that comes down to prior that well, that comes down to prioritization, and then that comes down to pricing, and then what happens if you're wrong? Like you can't you cannot you can't it's it's nearly impossible to, you know, build and maintain a piece of equipment um, that is applicable to a hundred percent of, uh, of all terrain in, in, uh, you know, uh, throughout the globe. It, it just, it just is. Right. Yep. Yep. And, and, and that's the interesting thing too, is that this is a pure procurement philosophy question that I think is uh, mm-hmm. something that besets all major military powers because you you, know, you mm-hmm. want to be able to actually coalesce and form mass and so therefore you want to have mm-hmm. interchangeability of parts and redundancy but at the same time yep. not everything um you know sometimes you need a uh let's say uh, a fine chisel instead of a sledgehammer for everything but yeah. you've got a ton of sledgehammers mm-hmm. so what ends up happening is uh russia in 1995 in chechnya rolling in for an counterinsurgency <laughs> with like, you know, a basically an entire armored core and then getting their ship yep. pushed in because they were completely uh, mismatched with the environment mm-hmm. and with the nature of the mission. Now, I guess I wanted to give some feedback or background rather to the audience listening. There is uh, a number of different modernization programs going on in the United States military, and namely mm-hmm. among them is the U.S. Army um, plan. Uh, it's called the uh, Army of 2030, but mm-hmm. effectively what and, it and, – And the Army of 2040, so don't forget like, – those are two things as well. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. There is yeah. one follow-on yeah. as well, isn't there? Yep. So, yes, there is. Uh, just focusing on the 2030, however, because of the corollary mm-hmm. with the Marine Corps, it seems as though – and from their own lectures that I've been listening to, uh, the refocusing of mass over, of course, the brigade tactical team 
uh, combat yes, team, yes. Uh, model. And I, I wanted to pick your brain as far as how mass comes into play in modern warfare. And do you believe that um, because how do, how do I frame this in the correct way that I'm trying to get at? <laughs> but it, it seems like mm -hmm. smart munitions are becoming so plentiful and so cheap that ultimately throwing mass is the only way to overcome um, surgical munitions, which are, of course, you know, tailored to, you know, our, our, our Cold War era 1980s airland battle type techniques of mm -hmm. Schwerpunkt and so on. What is the way to overcome these smart munitions in modern warfare? Have you discovered any, any talk about that? Is there any initiative <clears throat> to address this? So I, I, so, uh, so I guess you're speaking of the, the, one of the initiatives of army 2030 is to take, the brigade combat team that has dominated, you know, um, since 2001, the GOI, right. Mm -hmm. um, and strip it of its assets that were once at the division, then uh, to reconstitute them at the division level and make the division rather than the brigade, um, you know, the main maneuver force on the battlefield. I'm assuming that's what you're kind of talking about yes. in that regards, right? I am. Okay. Okay. So, um, so, and then how does the, and then you're, and then can you ask the question again about mass? Just make sure I'm tracking right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is the reintroduction of mass a counter to the center of gravity posed by smart munitions? So basically making targets plentiful, but cheap. Mm. Is that, is, <laughs> yeah, I know that sounds, that sounds really no, no, because it's, 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 well, I mean, no, it's, it's, lives, it's, but, you know, um, it's, I mean, it's, um, how do you, how do you, how do people believe, uh, the allies were successful at Normandy, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it was literally mass again, you know, it was the hope that the, uh, Germans would, uh, have less bullets than uh, allied sold soldiers that could be put onto the beach, right? Essentially, right. that's what it was. Of course. Uh, I mean, kind of, you know, you know very Broad kind strokes. of, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> very rough and very, you know, Crayola type, you know, logic. But yeah, that's essentially what it was, right? We're just going to throw so many people at you that there's just not enough targets for you to hit all at once. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not so much a reintroduction of mass. It's more of a, I guess I would say, a, a you know, refocus on mass. And again, that's, you know, being rather pedantic, but, you know, mass has always been a part of the principles of war. Um, and so it's... <laughs> the reason I say that is because it's not like they are going to, the, the army is not getting any bigger. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually <laughs> shrinking. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there has been discussions about, um, you know, force changes really, you know, leading to force reductions or changes in force structure, uh, which would lead to force uh, reduction in forces because people just aren't signing up. So it's, the army is going to have a hard time of putting, you know, putting enough mass in one place to overcome the cheapness of these, of, you know, UADs and so forth of these munitions um, in that sense, right. The, the reliance of mass to just overcome, you know, the amount of cheap missiles, cheap uh, platforms that can be directed towards them. Um, it's more about 
the the reintroducing the 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 division level um not so much about that at least i don't see it it's more about operating at a division level is something that I have lost for the longest time and seeing it as a um counter or seeing it as a um uh a need in the great powers uh, competition that that is supposed to be coming between china and russia and so forth right it's not so much about i i don't think it's so much about the ability to counter cheap uh, uh, cheap weapon systems right mm-hmm. that that is where that is where they're leaning heavily into uh, the uh, autonomous type systems uh, the uh, AI type systems to counter that threat you know they're leaning more into the technology side than the mass side to uh, to counter that threat the most interesting development revealed to us by the Ukrainian war um, is actually the EW capabilities of the Russian military. Uh, yes. Yes. Originally it had been the case that America, American combat power was obviously, okay. Just to give you background legionaries out there. Um, the idea is that the United States really heavily emphasized on a technological edge um, mm-hmm. from the 1970s period onward to counter the mass the overwhelming mass of the Soviet Union and focusing on striking, you know, deep, deep strikes into the enemy logistic rear. Now, uh, of course, our enemy gets a vote, right? And so, of course, they were working furiously to counter our technological edges. And among them is, of course, scrambling targeting systems that a lot of these Mm -hmm. uh, weapons platforms that the United States military utilizes. And, of mm-hmm. course, one of the things that we discovered ourselves is the, ca- the capacity for the, US, uh, for the Russian military to uh, veer off course or to hack uh, JDAMs off target <laughs> successfully yeah. at roughly a, a rate of 70%. At first, it's become more efficacious as time has gone on, but it still remains a significant challenge to uh, mm-hmm. combat uh, power, if that makes sense, and it be, especially because of the fact that our doctrine revolves very strongly on surgical precision uh, munitions i think that's something that really uh, is understated right i mean am i wrong i, I think I, I think it would i think it, uh, to be better put is uh doctrine relies on having absolute air superiority mm-hmm. yes so oh, so perfect and uh, i guess you know i wanted to pick your brain can you tell mm-hmm. us about the russians EW capabilities. What do we expect, and what is that? What is it that blew our socks off and cha- kind of changed <laughs> our estimation of the Russian threat? So I know a few things, but sadly I can't really put them out on this uh, on this medium. Yeah. Um, you know, but spending time. So when I was in uh, doing some operations in Germany, I was on mobilization in Germany and giving several, given several briefs by uh, you know higher echelon intelligence assets. Um, it was rather eye-opening and shocking to see the the abilities that at the time, you know, even this was before. Uh, again, this was Russia was in the Donbas, but it had not, and and in the in Crimea, but it had not gone fully more fully into uh, or further into uh, Ukraine. But um, you know, learning the capabilities they had of where we were stationed or where we were conducting operations in, or training in Poland, being told you know, the Russians essentially can hear you, 
right? And you're just and, and you're like, what the hell is going on? Are you serious? And um, yeah, 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 yeah. By hear us, I mean not like by hear us, I mean intercept our, our comms and, right, and right. signals and such. At, at, even at the distance that we were, mm-hmm. um, you know, certain platforms out there and and, and all that. And and it again, it's because the U.S. military has relied on technology for so long uh, in a, in a way to minimize the threat, I'm sorry, the, minimize the threat to the individual, you know, service member, soldier, sailor, airman, uh, and Marine, right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, perform surgical strikes, hit them with drones rather than actually putting, you know, people on target, right. Unless they're, you know, SF or such. Mm-hmm. And while great in, uh, many ways, because it you know keeps you <laughs> keeps you alive and, and so forth, and um, you know, and, and great in the sense that in a uh, uncontested um, in, in an uncontested airspace, you know, it works perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, but that over reliance has you know kind of dulled the senses of the American people and in the Pentagon and, and so forth to the fact that in warfare people die. It just happens. I'm sorry, it just does. Um, and it's sad, and I'm, you know, I'm glad I, I didn't die when I was in Iraq and, and other and other locations. But people do, and it's sad, and, and it's um, it's a it's a part of warfare. Like you cannot, you can, you can try to make warfare as clean as possible, but it's not. You, you, there's only so far you can go. Mm-hmm. In a way, the Pentagon went too far. The DoD went too far, or the U.S. government went too far. You know, the, the, you know, the, the over-reliance on bombing locations, the, the air campaign in the 91 Gulf War, the 03 invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan and so forth, um, you know, try to make this kind of bloodless war. Mm-hmm. Doing so, it's really atrophied the skills of, you know, I can only speak really of, you know, the military, of the U.S. Army, of, you know, the individual soldier. You know, you give an individual soldier a map and a compass and they have no idea where they're doing, where they're going and so forth. Right. Mm-hmm. They've been so reliant on GPS, everything from their phone to even, um, you know, daggers that they would have in, in Afghanistan. And so what happens when that gets turned off? Right. What happens when GPS goes down? What happens when the generators go down? What happens when you hit, you know, you get, you know, an EW, you know, something with EW affects your ability to, to perform combat operations. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how well, it, how well has it been trained for, um, for, for operations to continue. And again, that's just something that's just atrophied within the, in the U S army. Technology uh, fails precisely. Yeah. It does. yeah technology fails. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and that has, that has been my biggest gripe in the last five to seven years, looking at how the, U.S. Army ha- has adopted certain transitions, you know, going very high tech. When I believe, well, maybe you should go also low tech in certain ways, and mm. and they just, they just have. It seems to um, be- and go ahead. Oh, and you know, low tech is you know, low tech isn't always the answer. High tech isn't always the answer. It's always the right mix because it depends on the you know the attributes of of the specific war that you're fighting, but it's it's more of a, if you step back, right. It's more about how there is an, a, a lack of imagination, a lack of research, a lack of, of allowing uh, different viewpoints or dissonant viewpoints into the, um, into the decision-making process. And I, and I think that is really 
the issue. That's really the crux of what's going on within a lot of the decision-making within say the Pentagon. You know, uh, I can't help but agree with you, and I'm really glad that you've been, especially you're somebody that is of uh, far superior qualifications than I do, you know, <laughs> as a combat veteran and thank uh, you. a dude that oh, uh, actually knows the fuck he's talking about. However, it's something I've, I, I, thought... I, I, know, I know how to use Wikipedia and I know, and I know how to use and I, uh, read Doctor, and that's about it. Good to go, good to go. No, no, yeah. at the end of the day, I think, how do I say this? The challenge of every military since the dawn of time, because of the natural innate quality of the culture, of a martial culture, gives it leans it leans towards conservatism in the sense it doesn't like dissenting opinions. If it does change, it changes mm, in a yeah. very uh prescribed way, top down, as mm -hmm. I'm sure you noticed. And of course, Although I think I'd, I want to applaud uh, specifically the Army for, uh, for providing a forum for military experts and military-adjacent individuals to provide maybe pitch ideas and so on to innovate um, military thinking uh, beyond the scope of the, you know, the big Army itself. However, mm -hmm. you know, I, I completely agree with you, and you see this in the combat operations of people of, uh, for instance, the Russian Federation – as I alluded to before in the Chechen wars and later in Georgia, mm -hmm. and of course later on in the early Ukrainian war. And then finally now um, we are starting to see that, you know, it's just, as you say, technology isn't the ace in the hole. It's an yeah. important edge, but our enemies are just as good. And ultimately mm -hmm. we need a lot of durable equipment readily available mm -hmm. And just as people are talking about, like, there's this famous maxim, amateurs talk about tactics and masters mm -hmm. talk about logistics. One of the most yep, pressing agree. concerns that have been revealed to us in this conflict, like I said in mass, is the lack of uh, safe industrial base or military industrial complex mm -hmm. in the United States um, <laughs> that's secured in a chain that can actually provide logistical support to um, any potential large-scale military operations and that is a yeah. glaring uh shortcoming of ours which of course is due to the 90s and globalization and the end of the cold war and we're seeing mm -hmm. that ultimately a country that has a real industrial base is the one that will win at the end of the day um you know i wanted to ask you your opinion on the primacy of addressing that issue and what you know you suggest and and what could possibly we do to fix that shortcoming um, so just kind of go back to what you were saying at the very beginning, right? With, mm -hmm. you know, uh, technology, uh, durable, uh, low tech and all that, right? Mm -hmm. Honestly, none of that matters if you do not have a coherent strategy on how to use those uh, effectively in a means to accomplish your mission. So you can have all the missiles in the world. You have all the Tomahawks. You're going to have 11 aircraft carriers. But if you don't have a strategy that is coherent that has, you know, set criteria for mission success it really doesn't mean anything, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I, mean, I just want to kind of point that out is like, you know, again, you know, we've relied so much on our, you know, the, you know, having the mostest, having the bestest and so forth. Mm -hmm. But then when we go into operations with, you know, kind of this kind of fuzzy idea of what we're going to do, you know, bad things happen, innocent people die and soldiers come home dra draped in 
America, uh, American flag coffins, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, that, that is what need, that's a part of what needs to be addressed is, uh, you know, fixing how strategy flows down to the operational level, down to the tactical level, and, you know, the almost a reintroduction of what strategy is that has been lost, um, you know, since the Cold War and since the, the you know, we no longer have this kind of, uh, uh, you know, life or death enemy, it being the Soviet Union. And, you know, that kind of dovetails into my, you know, somewhat of a hobby of researching, you know, uh, the rise and fall and death of, you know, what is called strategic intelligence. Mm-hmm. So that's just kind of like my little, um, a little pet project, pet project I have. Can you explain? Um, can you explain that? Actually, I'm not aware of this. What What, what is that? I, I'm, I'm not. A, I'm not even aware of it as a category in and of itself. So if you just, uh, you know, tell us. Are you speaking of uh, like strategic intelligence? That's right. Okay, so, so you know there are you know echelons when it comes to uh, war fighting, right? So you have the tactical level, which is you know essentially where the you know bullets are flying, flying soldiers. Are, you know, in the trenches and, and so forth. Operational is, you know, the next step higher where, you know, instead of directing individual, say, uh, units of a battalion or so, but they, you know, you're getting more, say, like, um, you're on the campaign. Brigade, level. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, kind of campaign level. You're looking at, you know, larger swaths of countries and, and so forth. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes maybe uh, entire, um, entire nations and so forth and strategy right is at the um you know qcom centcom national global type of perspective right it's you know the overarching um it's the overarching uh vision there's different ways you can put it but like this overarching vision of how the war should be fought and what it's being fought for essentially um and uh, in the in the terms of strategic intelligence, um, it, it follows it follows the same, right? You have tactical intelligence, which is you know you know I just, I just grab this insurgent off the um, uh, uh, you know off the field, and he gave me this information. So of course, so that's you know tactical you know tactical level you know, operations at the next level, and, and then strategic is kind of. Um, is that at that same level of COCOM and, you know, at, at national kind of level uh, of operations and strategic intelligence has been kind of, you know, given this idea that it's a timeline, like it's a over a, you know, over the horizon type thing, but it's also about, you know, fulfilling the needs of what the, the strategic level decision-making needs to be, and that doesn't necessarily, you know, isn't bound by a time, you know, a long time. It could be, you know, a year, right? A strategic type of uh, objective could still be within a year, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And um, and so strategic intelligence has always been this ability to see things at a larger scale rather than you know, seeing the larger players, how they interact versus as we have, as the U S army has become accustomed to more at the tactical level of getting the surgeon the next day, right. Mm. The Intel cycle of, you know, of combat operations down at the, um, the battalion brigade level running against insurgents, right. You know, you know, pop, 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 getting those insurgents 
you know, off the streets, getting the IEDs off the um, so off the I roads and so forth. Correctly, it's effectively uh, it's effectively perceiving the the political end state brought on of the war, basically, like elucidating yeah. the goals of the end state. But then, Right, but the, so strategic intelligence is what is fed to the decision makers, Congress, and you know, president, and so forth. That doesn't is it's just more than just about you know what's going on tactically at the ground level. It's about hey, this is what you know three five, you know could be three five years down the road. This is what we see emerging threats, so forth, blah blah blah. blah right, mm-hmm. um, and we just kind of lost that. Right, we just have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just it's 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 rather atrophied, and there has been some effort to reintroduce it. Uh, there's been several books written. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of articles written in the 90s about it because that was when a lot of the major players of the Cold War began to see the um, I guess you say de-evolution of it. Um, as, you know, at the, at the CIA and, and other types of three-letter three-letter agencies, mm-hmm. and they sort of uh, they started to uh, you know ring the bell, but it, it didn't work. You know, the the greatest issue, I think, is that there is no unity of political command in the United States. As you can see, like the decision making um, imperative uh, is not set by any one sovereign. So there isn't like this cogent. I'm, so, I'm sorry. What do you mean by that? Sorry. So like, um, you know, imperatives are especially like, for instance, in Afghanistan, I think is the most famous mm-hmm. uh example of mission creep in our most recent mm, okay. history. Okay. And the reason well, being is because the you know uh the executive authority had to balance the interests of various different organs within the United States government instead uh-huh. of of course these organs meeting the demands of a the political sovereign, the actor. Like so in this case of course the mm. uh commander in chief, which is the president, mm-hmm. uh in in so instead, the American model is deferring to departments for their own specific uh, strategic interests, or rather, its strategic imperatives it's given itself. And what ends up happening, of course, is that none of these individual departments can achieve their stated end state without, of course, imposing um, shortcomings or vulnerabilities or destabilization of someone else's end state. And we saw that in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. I'm sure you you probably fucking remember. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, like uh, um, let's say like the DIA, uh, very much mm-hmm. uh, focused on the uh, the uh, I think it's the Al Haqqani or I forgot what it was called, the, but the 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 Pakistani Al Haqqani network and the eastern uh, eastern Afghanistan Haqqani. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and then of course mm-hmm. there there were you know State Department imperatives of women's rights and so on, and then of course there's you know <laughs> the, the myriad different uh, presidencies and their cabinets mm-hmm. and their interests, and of mm-hmm. course you know the uh, the military industrial complex and their interests and, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Yeah. And I don't want to bother you, but I guess what I'm no, trying no. to ask you is, I feel like the reason why the we lack that strategic insight. Or that that will to have a clear defined goal like we want, like the one we had in 1991, Desert Storm, is mm-hmm. because ultimately the presidency has lost its unity of command and vision, and therefore cannot dictate solid parameters for any one stated war goal. Would you agree with that? Um, um, I'm. So I, 
I'm just I'm gonna push back a little bit in the notion that go for it. Um, the president does issue out national security guidance and strategy. I think on a biannually basis, every two years it comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know that is the framework of how the government, you know, all the agencies, departments, and so forth um, are going to. You know, uh, that is what they're working towards, right? The the, the strategy, the national security strategy that it comes out, right? Mm-hmm. The problem is uh, not so much that the president doesn't have necessarily control over those agencies and departments. It's more of the way I see it is that um, there isn't a single or a singular point of threat that could be, it, it all can be directed towards. Does that make sense? Um, you know, up, you know, up, you know, through the Cold War, it was, it was the Soviet Union, right? Mm-hmm. And so everyone was, you know, everyone was on, you know, that mission set. Everyone was on the I same stage of music, right? It's, a, it's and about so, calibrating on a common target, right? A common correct. definable and, target. Okay. Yeah. And then when the Cold War was over, you know, going into, and then going, and then before GWAT, I mean, it was literally like schizophrenia, right? I mean, it was in the sense that uh, you had departments and missions and all this kind of stuff, like, you know, in search of, you know, new avenues to make themselves relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and also with this comes the rise of all the social issues, social um, um, <laughs> so it's just social justice-ish stuff that comes up right and that starts creeping into the narrative about the same time mm-hmm. and so then when GWAT hits uh you know it, it just be, it's uh <laughs> as i call it it becomes you know warfare adhd mm-hmm. um you know, they just there is no single point of focus right how, like how do you like how do you defeat if if it if it, if it is a global war on terrorism mm-hmm. terrorism is a tactic so how you how do you defeat a tactic right because of that, and that being relatively ill-defined through many and several national security uh, strategies, um, it, it gives a lot of leeway for all these departments to kind of do whatever the hell they want, right? To enjoy to address that issue, you know. And that's why in Afghanistan you had, you know, this, you know, gender rights type of type of type of initiative by the Department of State and and, and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's more uh, that that case versus. Um, then, you know, the, the president or the, or the executive branch just, um, um, you know, not having control, you know, it's just this lack of a singular form, uh, focus of, uh, of threats, uh, so, you know, and one, you know, and then one can say, you know, the whole notion of deep state continuing on with their mission sets, um, and, you know, the Trump administration and certain departments and just, you know, just outright ignored what he said. So, yeah, that's, that was actually Honestly, I was impressed the ballsiness of it. Just uh, the flagrant. It's just. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> hey, um, DOD, Pentagon, I want you out of Syria now. Mm, nah, we're just not gonna do it. We're good. <laughs> we're good. But again, I mean, but again, I, I, but I'm, I'm, I will say this. Mm. You know, they tried to pull the same shit with Biden, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and. I, I give Biden credit and like he, you know, he stood firm. And again, I think, you know, you know, if, if <laughs> I'm not making any, I'm not making any statements about the 2020 election. If I, <laughs> Trump, if Trump was president now or at the time during the uh, drawdown or during the uh, withdrawal, 
you know, you know, he would have, you know, stuck to, to stuck to the guns as well. But, you know, part of, you know, the issues that arose out of, out of the withdrawal of Afghanistan was you know, the DOD dragging its feet. It really, I mean, in the Pentagon, just dragging its feet, saying that, oh, we're never going to leave. So therefore, we're just not going to plan, plan, have any type of contingency plan mm-hmm. or you know, any type of well thought out contingency plan. Mm-hmm. And that's how, I, again, that's my belief. You know, I, I've I've come to a similar perception of things. Like I think you're 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 right on target. Honestly, I think you're over target right now because ultimately, I, I mean, you know the nature of bureaucracy, and especially when you get into intelligence with compartmentalization, mm-hmm. which a lot of you guys don't know. Mm-hmm. Basically, you can have security clearance, but it's also need to know basis. So there's yep. a vector yep. Yep. which bisects, you know, people's basically mental horizon you know it, it, it mm-hmm. limits them mm-hmm. and so ultimately what we have is basically a a bunch of individuals in offices coming to conclusions based on incomplete pictures and there is always chaos and it's and it's part of the parcel of the reason why the surge of 2007 kind of failed in iraq unfortunately mm-hmm. and i mean I guess the, the one thing that I think the United States, and I, I'm, since I'm a private citizen, I can say this, I would say that, you know, I, I think when America, America was better at waging war when it was waging it under Henry Kissinger, because we make too many of these mistakes where we go abroad and we occupy a country and then we start doing this thing which is a big no-no. I mean, ever since, you know, read Machiavelli, the Prince, you have to recognize, you have to uh, respect the customs of the local place that you're in. And ultimately we made that massive mistake in Iraq and especially in Afghanistan, where we are sending, um, you know, people who are antithetical to their convictions as odious as we may perceive them to be. It is important as war fighters to be, um, uh, let's say Romans in Rome, if that makes sense, <laughs> because yeah. what, what's going to end up happening is exactly what ended up happening with the Soviets. And it happened with us, which is we estranged the population we we're trying to win over, which or at least ac- get their acquiescence, if, if not their outright support, um, because of the fact that we're pushing things that really kind of rub them the wrong way. And, and in fact, many of the state department initiatives rub regular Americans the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And I, I mm-hmm. believe Returning to a mode of war where the military imperatives reign as paramount instead of the social imperatives or anything else down downstream, I think that would be a, a good way of actually waging and conducting warfare. I mean, would you agree with that? So um, I kind of have two parts of that is, um, you know, you bring up Kissinger um, and it's, you know, I... There needs to be a reintroduction into 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 the conversation of uh, you know in our national uh, security conversation how we use the military in uh, of the recognition of the very clearly stated, very clearly um, um, delineated interests of of um, what we would consider. Uh, near peer adversaries, great powers, and so forth, um, and, and even you know uh, middle tier nations, right? Like we have like the recognition of okay, this is your this is your like this is country X's 
um, you know, geopolitical interests. This is what they want, so forth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and giving it some, some, giving it validity. We don't necessarily agree with it, right? Um, but then when that, obviously, when that, when that, when that national security, when their uh, interests very much compete with ours, or cre- you know, create a threatening situation for us. Which again, we must be very clear about what our state and national security interests um, are. Um, then that's that's when that's when you really start to introduce military force, you know, diplomacy by other means, and and, mm-hmm. and so and so forth. And we just don't do that, right? Like we just kind of like that, ah, you know. The greatest example is, of course, Saddam Hussein's occupation of Kuwait and having yeah. converse with the U.S. ambassador, you know, effectively asking for permission, asking if the United States would react mm-hmm. to such a, an aggression. And I think, like, in the most understated, most con- wrong way of, you know, portraying ourselves, yeah. the ambassador basically told Saddam Hussein that we, would, we wouldn't care and of course, we didn't yeah. really care. And I, I completely agree yeah. with you. Just to yeah, serve and, as an example yeah. to what you're saying, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, again, I mean, that's again, that's. I mean, you're. <laughs> well, that the problem with that was like, um, because Iraq still had a very large um, army, no matter you know how you know what state it was in, you know, it, it was more about threatening. Uh, Saudi Arabia. That was really what people were like. That's really what got like the gut, like U.S. government all freaked out, right? It wasn't them invading Kuwait. It was their his. It was uh, the the uh, weakness, the military weakness and vulnerability to Saudi Arabia. Really, that's what that's what it boiled down to. Because what I understand um, at the time, the majority of the oil was coming from that region specifically, and the oil fields were just over the border from Kuwait, right? Is that how? It was yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So, well, so the. Well, it's not only that, but also like like the destabilization of the Saudi government, right? So, you know, the Saudi government, while very you know pro Western, caveat of how much money got flowed, you know, uh, flow flowed into the coffers of Al Qaeda slash you know nine eleven. Anyway, uh, <laughs> um, you know, the Saudi government is you know is, is pro Western, it's pro America. The people, maybe not so much, right? Because you know, you know, because of cultural reasons, right? Right, of course, um, and so. You know what they didn't want was some sort of invasion, or you know, making the the, the government at the time seem weak, and then you know that causing a whole whole, whole host of issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but again, going back to the recognition of you know other nations kind of you know, vested geop- geopolitical or you know, national security interests, right? The U.S. has a long history of just kind of like overlooking that, you know, of you know we do, you know, it's a, it's very much of you know what we do is okay if you do it, it's not. Um, and you know, just kind of dismissing the the desires of other nations and what they want to do. Now, granted, sometimes that's good, sometimes that's bad. Sometimes, you know, again, certain you know nations need to be pushed back against. Um, but again, you know, when you just ignore or you make a nation who has a very long history of being very proud of who they are seem less than seem less than what they seem less, or make them view themselves as less. You know, it's it's just a recipe for disaster, right? You know, and you can kind of see what's going on with Russia with today. Um, yeah, no, so yeah. precisely, and, and um, mm-hmm. it is really. And again, I'm not, again, again. Let me just we can't be at this. I do not condone Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think it's wrong. You shouldn't invade in other nations with under false pretense. <coughs> so there you go. 
<laughs> well, of course, and like I said before, we're examining things from an indifferent perspective. You know, we don't have a, mm-hmm. a dog in this fight. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and I guess I just to kind of bring it full circle here, and we're talking about the intangible with the tangible, the kinetic with the mm-hmm. political, and yeah. I guess the perfect crux crossover between information warfare and political dialogue uh, was with the Putin uh, Carlson interview. <laughs> and I guess yeah. I just wanted to first. Wait, 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 which I'm, I'm going to confess, I have not watched. Oh, okay. I have not watched at all. Okay. No. And, 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 and the reason I haven't watched is um, one, I, I guess I just really haven't found the time. I, I've been kind of busy. And two, I really didn't see it as like me learning anything from it. Um, what I really was interested in and really what I focused on in that interview was people's reaction to it. That, that to me is the story. So mm-hmm. sorry, go, go, um, so go ahead. So, I mean, for those of you that don't know right now, I believe Russia is the most embargoed country in the world, economically speaking, mm-hmm. more than the DPRK, North Korea, which is, <laughs> which is very interesting, right? Very interesting. And um, obviously it seems that our, economic forecasts for their country are vastly underestimating its actual economic potency and its ability mm-hmm. to circumnavigate our embargoes. It seems that they have more friends than we expected, or at least uh, yeah. the liberal clique in government. Well, uh, I, w- know, I would, I would call them, I would, again, I don't, wouldn't call them friends. I would say people with similar interests. Like I wouldn't necessarily say India and Russia are friends, but they have similar interests. Partners, how about that? Maybe partners, yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah, yeah, weather yeah. friends, maybe I don't know, but yeah. what I, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but I guess the main controversy is that people are calling for Tucker Carlson, an American citizen, to be detained mm-hmm. upon re- visiting the United States, his home country, mm-hmm. for interviewing a I guess hostile power. But although we are in its, you know, we're 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 at we're at peace, diplomatic peace with Russia. Mm-hmm. We are um, not at war. With, we are not at war with Russia. Yes, exactly. And are we? Are we? Are we? I guess. I guess so. I mean, maybe. Maybe <laughs> Randy or not. But I guess uh, I know, quite, quite. it begs the question, though, because in this age, this globalized age of information, mm-hmm. you know, information warfare is itself just as dangerous and just as deadly as you know a man with a gun in, in a trench on the Ukrainian front. As we can see, it can really mm-hmm. affect morale, and it really can undermine the. Uh, support Ukraine might receive, and I think that's what I heard as well mm-hmm. from the pro-Ukrainian side. And then, of course, there's the American principle side, which is he's an American citizen ex- exercising mm-hmm. freedom of speech, and that ultimately yeah. the only thing more corrosive to uh, our American republic dying than invasion is our dereliction of our freedoms, which is freedom of speech itself and our our Mm -hmm. lack of ability to champion it. And so I guess I wanted to ask you, what are the military implications of this kind of dialogue? And then second of all, Mm -hmm. what what are the internal... Well, actually, I can't ask you political questions. How about I ask you... No, you can can, ask me a question, and I can can see if I can answer it or not. Okay, yeah. I I guess I would be asking you, what does American freedom mean in a world where even speech is considered a weapon of the enemy and are we in that i mean you mean like now i mean last 20 years i mean <laughs> i mean don't forget you had the the sedition act that wilson used to put debs in jail 
right? Mm-hmm. Alien Sedition Act, so, 1917. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's kind of oldest time again. You know, uh, Lincoln did it. You know, with new- newspapers and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, okay, so, um, yeah, so you know, not only have people called for his detention. I mean, people have called for him to be, uh, you know arrested for treason right and you know again when you ask them you know well, what do you do with traitors right you know th- they seem to kind of like kind of glaze over right like, mm-hmm. like, you kill traitors right that's well, their, they, like, they that's, know very well oh, what they're taught what they're saying they know what no no but but, but, they, but they but they will not verbalize that right they, they say well no he needs to be arrested for treason but then when you ask them okay well, then what does that mean again they kind of glaze over right mm-hmm. um and so meaning that they just they're, they're cowards um <laughs> And, and, you know, again, the reason I really wasn't interested in, you know, watching it, it's, it's not going to necessarily change hearts and minds of the people who either like Tucker or don't like them and all that. It's more about, you know, how do people within the media and the government react to it? Right. Um, you know, the, you know, you bring up the, all the interviews that Barbara Walters conducted through her uh, career with all the, you know, some of the worst elements and the, um, dictators and, and, and authoritar- um, uh, authoritarian uh, leaders of nations. And again, there's no real response. They say it's different this time. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's they don't tell you why, though, you know, because it's about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about democracy yeah. and my decency. OK. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, um, you know, it's always about. Oh, well, um you know, well, they're well. The, the real journalists who are in Russia, they're they're in jail, right? Mm-hmm. The real Amer- Americans are in jail. And I'm like, okay. I mean, again, how does that apply to the situation? Um, you know, it's so it's it's born out of the, one of just this kind of blind hatred of Tucker in the first place, and everything he kind of stands for and does and says and and, and so forth. And then it's this kind of knee jerk reaction of uh, Putin is Hitler. <laughs> um you know the whole oh you know the, I, have you heard of um i came about came across this a, a little while ago and i found this to be very interesting but the whole uh, concept of uh you know, you know schrodinger's cat right yeah you, you, know, you know that concept okay yeah. so like but it's being, being being applied to the russian military right so either you know how you know it's it's either the most strongest thing in the world and it's going to take nato um, but at the same time, it can't, and you know, take over Ukraine, right? So yeah, it, so it can't the, be true. Both, both, both for the audience, for the audience, Schrodinger's cat is a concept where it's both a, a thing is both is and isn't, and is both things at once until it's verified. Which means, basically, mm-hmm. what what Pete is saying, uh, Mr. Wrangle is saying, is that uh, people are saying for three years now that Russia is both on the edge of collapse and also on the precipice of invading. France mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, the, you know, it's short against and, Russia. And, you yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, how many articles have you read throughout the last several years? So we're leading up on what in the second on the second um, anniversary of the invasion. How many articles have you read where Russia was literally scraping the bottom of the barrel of of their missiles? Right, right. Uh, you know, in, uh, innumerable, innumerable. Yeah, or and that again, Putin that's was dying and, from Alzheimer's or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and to me, that, to me that. Like I hate that, you know. Again, Russia shouldn't invade Ukraine, but again, I hate that because it just illustrates piss poor intelligence analysis, right? And coming from someone who, who takes that as a, who's 
um, done that as a profession, like it's just I hate it. I I hate seeing piss poor intelligence analysis passed along as truth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, passed along by all these individual, all these military talking heads, uh, whom if you control left their names in the Afghan Afghanistan papers, you know they proliferate. Um, you know, they proliferate those uh, those reports. You know, that is a, and, that, that is a major concern. I'm glad that you touched on that. That military mm-hmm. leaders and and um, you know high ranking officials have a rather incestuous information gathering source by outsourcing the, their information to these newspaper and all social media sites, mm-hmm. or, you know, classical media sites. Or, or 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 I think it's even I think it's worse when you have like they they outsource it to the to think tanks right like think tanks that obviously have an agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then you look at who's on the board of directors of them, and then you're just like, oh, look, the person who totally failed in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're all the board of directors. <laughs> okay, this makes sense. You know, the um, most interesting and, thing is it's like, of course, you know, when you're fighting Putin and, of course, the legacy of the ex-Soviet state is that there are a number of different mm-hmm. oligarchs and rich men, powerful men, mm-hmm. who have emigrated or been expatriated from Russia under threat of violence from Putin, obviously, mm-hmm. um, to... And basically, they have a bonus. They have a bones pick. And for instance, one of the mm. most prevalent ones is uh, Gary Kasparov, who is who was this ex chess like grandmaster, yeah. if I remember correctly, and a political mm. uh, opponent of Putin, who had to escape. He's a rich guy, and then he basically subsidized um, some you know classic media sources and and pulls influence mm-hmm. in furtherance of his personal vendetta against Russia because it's very yeah. interesting from an objective point of view the united states government has nothing to fear from uh, the russian government and and like a lot of russian people are going to be pissed at me but it's a fucking regional mm-hmm. power it's a pushover if we decided to actually what? balls to the wall attack or to interdict the russians in mm-hmm. ukraine I believe that obviously we'd be pretty bloodied. I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair must, but I'm definitely yeah. certain that we'd put, you know, push their shit in after a while. And I think that, I, I mean, you know, I, I agree. I, I agree with that to a certain extent. Like, yes, like we could, like we could, we could, uh, you know, yes, we could uh, cause a lot of damage to them. But then in return, like we, like our military would be on, like very decimated in the sense of, you know, of its combat strength. So again, yeah. Right. And like I said, we wouldn't get it's not it's not like we wouldn't get our hair must, you know, we, we definitely yeah. it would be mm-hmm. a dog fight. But what I'm trying yeah. to to explicate to the viewer who doesn't know these things is that in the mind of the boomer, the Russia is the Soviet Union and the, so, you know, yes. the Soviet <laughs> Union is unstoppable <laughs> and it has the same prerogatives and initiatives that, yeah. you know, the Soviet state had with its Marxist indoctrination. And, and the, like, reason I laugh, the, reason I, the reason I laugh, I'm sorry, is how interchangeable people use Russia and Soviet in the Soviet Union, you know, in tweets and stuff like that, or trying to get a message out. And like, it's just like, it's just a pet peeve of mine because it's, it just demonstrates how, how one illiterate they are. And two, how obvious what the point they're trying, like the propaganda they're trying to push out. And and moreover, I think it's important to, it's causing us to misunderstand who Putin is. People believe Putin to be Stalin, when in reality, Putin was actually... No, 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 no. Even worse. No, no, no. They view him as Hitler. Right, right, exactly. They don't don't, don't even view him as Stalin, right? Because remember, Stalin has never used an example when it comes to the mass killing of people. Of course, yes. So, So Hitler, so yeah. No, but yeah. I, I guess my greater point that I'm trying to make, and for those of you who want to be informed, it was actually during 
the beginning of Putin's political career in the immediate aftermath of the dissolution of the Soviet Union, he was actually part of the faction fighting against the generals who were trying to do a coup in 1991 to restore the yeah. Soviet Union from crumbling. Mm -hmm. So this guy is actually, and, and the thing is that people don't understand both on left and the right is that Putin is not, he's not lebased, you know, whatever. He's a Machiavellian yeah. Uh, yeah. individual yeah, yeah, yeah. With, yeah. with classical liberal, maybe predilections. You know, he, he, he believe I think yeah. he is a liberal. I mean, he has every opportunity to, I mean, if he wanted to, to reform Russia into the Soviet Union again, if he wanted to, because he has that kind of power, or if he wanted to, he could, you know, I don't know, he could be just become a freaking czar, a dictator. But at the end of the day, I think he genuinely is just a, a strong man, Lee Kuan Yew parallel, you know. Uh, yeah, he's just he's a he's a someone who seeks power and will do such and will take on whatever means necessary to get power, right? Precisely. Like, no, he like, he like he isn't like a like he isn't this like and people who view him as such is is kind of disturbing, like as this like alt right right wing type of you know type of thing where like you know preserving orthodox Christianity and all kind of stuff like. Like no, that's just not true. That's just not happening. Um, and or, or, you know, so like that's that, like just don't. Like, or or the, yeah, so he's, he's a Soviet man, and because he's pushing, yeah 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 you know, yeah yeah. yeah. So, oh he oh he was he was in the KGB. Oh okay okay. Uh, do you realize that H W Bush was the head of the CIA? I mean, come on, man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And moreover, I think it should call to attention the underlying the reason why there's there are myriad misconceptions of Russia and Putin is because mm -hmm. Putin and Russia are all things to all people. And they do, yes. the intelligence services, specifically the GRU and others, have mm -hmm. a um, express purpose of doing that to both, mm -hmm. uh, how do you say, to both put the best case scenario, friendly scenario to different demographic um populations to make them more friendly to Russia, but also mm -hmm. to portray themselves in a favorable light, depending on who's yeah. doing. And that is one of the yeah. scariest things about 5G warfare is that they're able to affect an algorithm which re represents their country in a favorable light dependent on your personal predilections. And there are... Yeah, 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 yeah. Which yeah. is crazy. Exactly. Which is crazy. Yeah. Um, but I guess... Yeah. I guess. And, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I would say, like, kind of you know for me taking a step back a little bit you know it's a it goes back to the kind of the dearth or, or you know, the death of strategic intelligence right this 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 greater and broader view of um you know of a situation you know you know understanding how things came to be and why they are like understanding you know the background to that gave rise to putin you know uh, what Putin did in his first several years against the insurgency um, in Chechnya, uh, and so forth, right? And so, and and why people kind of, you know, and understanding, you know, what gave rise to him and what and what people kind of view him as, and you know, for whatever you know, you can say, you know, um, faulty elections and so forth, but like you know, continuing to get elected with really no real major like uh pushback or protests yes there are protests but they're not like you know you know streaming you know into the streets and such all the time right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so like and you're understanding the, the greater background to situations whether it be in you know what's going on in russia understanding what's going on in venezuela understanding you know 
the intricacies going on in Africa, you know, wherever, right? Like understanding all this stuff and, you know, doesn't necessarily, does not happen in a vacuum, right? right. History did not be, history, history did not begin in 1945, right? <laughs> history didn't begin, history didn't begin in 2001. You know, there are bigger um, trends in play and people just don't, like, people don't see it, nor do they want to because Again, people just don't see strategic intelligence or they don't use strategic intelligence yeah, in the you, government anymore. You know, I'm really glad that you say that. And I hope you don't mind me ranting for a little bit yeah. just to actually right. explicate your point. Um, you know, if if you are a military leader and any political leader, leader in general, do not be a peasant who perceives his enemy as good or evil. They're just exactly. adversaries. And ultimately, exactly. all political dynamics come down to power. Putin is not mm-hmm. a, he's not my friend, and he's not like nope. my like the 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 demiurge. He's not the antichrist. Mm-hmm. He is a dude who will stomp on your dick if he can to get his way mm-hmm. if you let him. Yeah. And ultimately, um, I believe that there's this like there's this American mistake of conflating morals with political analysis. And that ultimately, mm-hmm. you know, when, when in regards to Russia, like, of course, Russia is a, an adversary of the United States. It is adversarial. Mm-hmm. It is trying to maximize its power. It's called power maximization, right? However, mm-hmm. it, it, the, the, the art of diplomacy and understanding our strategic interests is to know when to fight, when to not, when to really go mm-hmm. out on a limb yeah. and limit someone. And I think that's yeah. something that you see on both sides of political spectrum, um, a, an absent of, and especially most alarmingly in the military elite, which mm-hmm. I believe compared to anyone else in American society should be the most responsible and the most sober minded about these things. Otherwise mm-hmm. we're going to get fucked. But I mean, that's not, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, well, I'm sorry, going, going to, <laughs> Yeah, I know, right? It's really unfortunate, yeah, yeah, yeah. but but I'd like to just last point that I'd like to, you know, I'd like to make. Well, so but, before you hit, before you get to your last point, I just it. want to hit on that. You know, you know, not seeing your enemies as good or bad, you know, good, evil, and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it also leads into do not underestimate underestimate your enemy, right? Do not de, you know, do not dehumanize them in a sense of. Um, you know, as we did, you know, during the GY, you know, uh, sandal wearing goat fuckers and such, you know, right? Um, be, you know, because you know what that does is it, you know, it, again, you underestimate their capabilities, right? Yes, they don't have the same capabilities as you, but they have other capabilities that you don't. And so, mm-hmm. once you start to do that, then you're just leading into a thought process, into a loop of of um, you know, your OODA loop, your, your, how you process things becomes very skewed. You, you miss things. And, you know, next thing you know, you're being driven out of Afghanistan and Iraq and other locations. Precisely. And that's a problem that is a problem I see within, um, you know, within, you know, government, military hierarchy and, and, and you know, in the private sector as well, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, just don't underestimate your enemy. Never, never do. Like, I don't like I don't uh, I don't think Russia is the greatest thing ever, you know, obviously, because they how they operated uh, in Ukraine, you know, they have a lot of doctrinal issues and they had a lot of issues operationally, but at the same time, I'm not going to say that like, you know, we could just, you know, take whatever, like our handful, maybe like brigade division issues in uh, what we have in, uh, uh, in Europe and make it into Moscow within a month. You know, I'm, I'm just not going to say that. Right. Right. Of course. Um, but yeah. 
but but people have. So that's I guess that's that's the point I wanted to make. You, you know, and the, the interesting history between us and Russia is actually pretty long. And this is the the point mm-hmm. that I wanted to make is that based on context, we uh, we are friendly and enemies dependent on the political mm-hmm. dynamics. So mm-hmm. for those of you yeah. that don't know. Uh, John Paul Jones, the founder of the United States Navy, was actually, after the Revolutionary War, um, commissioned by the Imperial Russian Navy to fight for them and train for them, train, you know, train him, train them, etc. And then later, of course, during the Civil War, the United States government uh, asked the Russian Baltic Fleet to to weigh anchor uh, to to in NYC Port Harbor, right, as a deterrent against possible British intervention, and especially because the Union Navy was uh, busy blockading the South and the clipper yep. ships, et cetera, mm-hmm. and the threat, of course, from, of invasion from the South by the French and a combined British force. And then later, mm-hmm. of course, uh, during the First World War, we were allies, and in the immediate aftermath, when the Bolshevik Revolution occurred, we sent a division of men <laughs> yep. to yes, fight did. the communists in the polar bear expedition. And it was only mm-hmm. when Russia became a Bolshevik state, a communist state, that we became true enemies, and especially after World War II, where mm-hmm. they became our only pure adversary. The aftermath, the issue with olds being in the government is that they are. So, but, 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 I, but I, I, I just want to, I just want to kind of continue on that, right? Go ahead. It, you know, I, I, the I have no illusion, nor should others have any illusion that after the wall fell, wall fell, NATO expanded, and you know this whole idea that Russia can be incorporated into NATO or or into some sort of you know, mutual agreement, like that just was not going to happen. Comma, but um, it is noted that Putin was the first the head of a state to call Bush um, after 9-11 uh, to provide or to provide assistance. And it is his um, and with his I guess with his like assistance uh, was able to open up the air bases in the stands that allowed for the uh, initial operations and for several years operations into Afghanistan. Oh, um, I didn't know that. And that, yeah, um, and that you know Russia being more you know kind of a, the you know Putin and Russia being more of a kind of like tit for tat. I do something for you, you do something for me type of mindset. When they, um, you know, didn't see the reciprocal nature you know things started to get cold you know again i'm not you know i'm not you know, uh, you know saying right or wrong what i'm just saying is that we have a very complicated history with them right mm-hmm. um that you know again you know uh and again you know 9-11 you know russia was still um you know, had a you know a low intensity uh insurgent move uh insurgency in uh uh, Chechnya, also in this very odd place called Dagestan, who certain peoples in the who was a Navy SEAL had no idea existed. <laughs> Ugh, whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know there were some mutual interests that could have been capitalized on. But again, there was to, there was never going to be any type of grand strat or grand alliance, NATO incorporation, and so forth. Of course. Um, and um, it's also again, it's also proven that. Um, the uh, intelligence apparatus within Russia were um, notified the FBI on two different occasions about the Boston bombers. 
and those uh, were essentially ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, again, they, those are just data points. They, they don't necessarily mean anything, <laughs> just the fact that we have a very complicated history with Russia. Yeah, and, and you know, I think this stems from, of course, this animosity stems from, how to say this in a diplomatic way, um, a certain clique who has a disproportionate amount of power in our government that are expatriates of that, you know, country, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And they have well, a yeah, yeah. to pick, and um, ultimately they make our, you know, our interest in waging war against them uh, you know, one and the same with theirs. And so yeah. I think there's a lot yeah, of misconceptions yeah, yeah. <laughs> and especially there are a lot of misconceptions with Cold War Gen X, you know, boomer types yeah. who, for whatever reason, I think it's maybe an age thing where like uh, after a certain age, you kind of like are in- incapable of having the brain plasticity to understand that the circumstances have shifted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very interesting when I talk to my mother, yes. You know, that that is the, I mean, yeah. and the worst thing, I think the worst thing is that we're focusing all this energy on Russia when we have to focus on the enemy within the gates, and we, which is the PRC. And, yeah. you know, which is the most incredible threat we are facing currently. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. when the Russians deployed their hypersonic missile uh, in the first strike in, in Ukraine, last year and we thought that was some kind of exceptional deployment and especially because we couldn't track it on our radar air defense battery for the patriot missile battery mm-hmm. or something um but the most concerning thing is that the the country with the most advanced ballistic missile technology is itself P- the prc and mm-hmm. on top of everything yeah. else they've I've, been massively up- upgrading and i guess i just wanted to pick your brain i mean like shouldn't we be focusing on the prc instead it, I've lost count on how many official pivots to Asia or the Pacific that the you know multiple administrations have tried to uh, you know um, initiate right mm-hmm. um, and you know yes the PRC you know more information is kind of trickling out you know the PRC does have some systemic and structural uh, structural issues that you know we may not have been tracking correctly. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not a threat. And that doesn't mean that, um, and, and that doesn't mean that China or the PRC does not have the will as a culture and as a government, uh, to address those issues in, in a, very, in a, in a manner that would be almost foreign, uh, to the West. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, if you were to, yeah, I would see, I would see the PRC as a threat. Uh, you know, because of it's not again military and all such, but also the stranglehold that it has, and you know, and manufacturing and, and all these different issues. Uh, yeah, the PRC is a is a greater strategic threat than Russia now and, and going into the future. Yes, I think the most amazing document to have come out of uh, the PLA is this this book called Unrestricted Warfare, which lays out in no uncertain terms the PRC's modus operandi of how to achieve political ends. And again, Mm -hmm. China is a highly centralized and unified country. And so they're able to do things, which I'm about to explain here, which is unrestricted warfare is the idea that war is not just the kinetic aspect of military forces engaging with other military forces to occupy physical territory. It is the simultaneous deployment of intelligence capabilities, economic capabilities, and paramilitary capabilities, as well as things such as information and political 
influence in, in, in rival countries. So I, I'm getting this information from General Brigadier, uh, Brigadier General, uh, I, th I think it's, shoot, it's escaping my mind, but the, the name of the book is Unrestricted Warfare, or excuse me, mm -hmm. uh, Stealth War. And basically, he enumerates in, in no uncertain terms how much land the PRC is buying in the United States, which is arable land, mm -hmm. being diverted mm -hmm. its productivity to China, uh, how many politicians, and I know this is not your opinion, but this is my own, and it doesn't reflect on you, mm -hmm. but politicians that are in, in the pocket of PRC oligarchs, for instance, uh, Mitch, McConnell. Mitch McConnell is married to the daughter of a major PRC mm -hmm. party member and an oligarch. Mm -hmm. And the and on top of everything else, of course, of the 5G network in the United States is actually in large part owned by uh, Chinese multinationals. TikTok, of course, is one of the most famous yep. examples. And this slow creep, this slow um dissolution of, of um, any defenses we may have domestically are quietly being acquired by inconspicuous individuals in furtherance of political objectives, right? So for instance, Taiwan. Um, many people believe that, uh, I know this for a fact, for the last 10 years, we the Americans believed that the PRC was on the verge of invading into Taiwan and seizing it forcefully. I mean, why would they yeah. when they just have to wait out the United States and slowly put pressure on the United States to finally concede or, uh, how do you say, loosen its protective guarantees on the Taiwanese government? And they have already done that. They've, uh, the United States government has already shifted a number of factories, strategically uh, important vital factories, back to the United States from Taiwan, as well as being less vocal in the support of its integrity until, of course, the most recent bill, which allocated certain amount of billions to their defense. So, I mean, mm -hmm. like, you know, I think the future of warfare is precisely that, that deep battle concept of multi-domain, yeah. multi-pronged uh, um, acquisition of political ends. I mean, have you read this book, by the way, Unrestricted well, Warfare? Not, yeah, uh, I haven't, but also long-term, right? So long-term initiatives, not necessarily, you know what I'm saying? Like not, but long-term initiatives that are also very consistent, no matter who's in charge, uh, you know, at the P in the PRC. Exactly. So that, that's something that's kind of, that, that I miss. Uh, so no, I haven't read the book yet. Actually, I actually need to, um, if you can send me the uh, link or the name of it, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Um, so I kind of want to make two points about that is, you know, one, again, you know, the PRC is, you know, they're, they're having some issues when it comes to, they're having actually serious issues, uh, you know, with their demographics. Um, you know, it, it, they're, they're aging a, lot, a little bit faster than we had initially assessed. Um, you know, the, the replacement rate, you know, birth rate isn't as high, again, as we had initially uh, believed it to be. Uh, and so, you know, maybe, maybe not their, um, you know, their ability kind of to wait out the West, in a sense, isn't as long as, um, you know, as one uh, kind of believes. I see. Um, how, comma, but, comma, but. Um, because of the one child policy, you know, there are, I think about 200 million males, um, in the, in, in China that, uh, because of the economy don't really have very bright economic futures or security. And also because of the gender imbalance have zero, um, um, 
have, have zero marriage chances process, of, of finding yeah. a, marriage, yeah. a marriage process, right? So, so you have 200 million essentially, um, you know, military aged men, right? Because if you look at, you know, the timeline such as the one child policy, um, and what is the PRC going to do with them, right? Because you know, two, you know, 200 million military aged men you know, that can be very dangerous within your borders, right? You know, no matter what, you know, they, whatever uh, ideology they support. So it's, a, so it is a, so the PRC probably, so it is a tool, right? There's 200 million, there's 200 million, million uh, military aged men um, are a tool. I see, I see them as a tool that the PRC will use. Uh, hey, gentlemen. We cut it off there because it ran a little bit too long. However, this will come in a second part. So, Legionaries, be aware for the next transmission. But until next time, this is Lance's Legion. This is General Lance and Sergeant Barnes, joined with you by General Wrangle. Uh, signing off until next time.